So how many of you saw at least a part of the telecast this morning? Let's see your hands. Okay. That's pretty good. That's just barely 50%, 50.1%. But thank you for uh, watching that. And, um, of course, one of the offers in that, or the offer, a literature offer we call it, uh, was the uh, audio CD titled Does God Exist? And it has uh, two other programs, one by Dr. Meredith and uh, one also by Mr. John O'Gwyn was Darwin Wrong. And I would encourage all you teenagers to listen to that. Mr. O'Gwyn really hits the um, the fallacies of uh, evolution. And uh, he quotes from a National Geographic magazine that evolution is like a movie with a thousand frames, only you have only one frame out of a thousand as evidence for what is evolution. And he said, how much of a movie could you understand with one frame out of a thousand? So how many of you, do any of you even have that particular audio CD titled, God, Does God Exist? See your hands. Okay, just about uh, two dozen out of uh, 700 of you. You know, I really would like to encourage you, brethren, when we offer something on the telecast, if you don't have it, phone in for that particular offer. For those of you who did see the telecast and want to um, order that particular audio CD, uh, the phone number that was given, uh, toll-free, 800-934-5582. That's specific for WGN to let... Uh, Mr. Ombi know our uh, media coordinator, uh, just how many people are responding in for that particular telecast. Uh, where's Mr. Ombi this morning? Can you see you? Um, are you here anywhere? Uh, could you please stand, Mr. Ombi, and just uh, let people know you are our TV coordinator. He does a great job in uh, working with, uh, with... Thank you, Mr. Ombi. <laughs> He does a great job in, in working with the uh, media agents that we have, and uh, we've been keeping up with all the statistics. So, But I would encourage you teenagers, if you don't have that audio CD, uh, adults as well, uh, to order that audio CD, Does God Exist? The phone number again, 800-934-5582. We want to thank you for your prayers and your support for the telecast. Uh, it's also available, as someone pointed out to me. There are apps available for Tomorrow's World. You can order those on some of those app stores uh, for Tomorrow's World, for your iPhones and your Androids. Well, we are living in the most exciting time of all man's history because we're coming close to the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And we're picturing the time after Christ comes here for the beautiful tomorrow's world, the world tomorrow, the world to come, as it's called in Hebrews. So we thank God for His promises that the kingdom is coming. We do have, of course, the booklets on uh, the world ahead, what will it be like, and I hope that you might even have that particular booklet. Those of you who have uh, studied uh, Bible prophecy, you know the milestones, the basic sequence, of the major events that are coming. There will be the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs or cosmic disturbances, and then the Day of the Lord, the one year preceding the return of Christ. 
The sixth seal, as most of you know, is called the heavenly signs or the cosmic disturbances. So recently there has been quite an uh, interest in the total lunar eclipse called the tetrad. Tetrad meaning four lunar eclipses. The first one occurred uh, the night to be much observed this year. And the second one occurred just um, jo- October 8th. Uh, the day just before uh, the feast began. Did any of you, I know about uh, probably about 50 people at Lake of the Ozarks actually saw the lunar eclipse, and they actually saw that it did turn red. You know, the idea is these are red blood moons. Did any of you here on the East Coast uh, see the total eclipse, the lunar eclipse? Oh, wow, quite a few of you, I'm surprised. It's a good... Uh, Fifteen percent of you saw that. And uh, it did turn red. Did you see it? Okay, you're shaking your head. Yes, it did turn red. Because God talks about a red blood moon. So what should the world learn from those eclipses? And, of course, there are two more for 2015. That will be April 4th, which is the night to be much observed in 2015, and September 28th, which is, again, near the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles in 2015. The world is getting a little crazy about it, but what should the world learn? The world should learn that it should read Bible prophecy and know that God is giving a hint of what is to come. There is that red blood moon. When you read in Revelation 6, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the world should learn that. And it also should learn that God's calendar is in action, and these take place on the 15th of the various months when the moon is full. And that so happens to be associated in this tetrad case with the night to be much observed in the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the world should take note of Bible prophecy, and the world should take note of God's holy days. And all four lunar eclipses take place near the holy days of God's plan. We are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and the word celebrate is actually in Leviticus 23, uh, verse 41, referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the New King James Version. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. And the word celebrate is also associated with the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 23, verse 32, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So I hope that we're all celebrating, we're all enjoying the feast here and the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day of the seventh month in God's calendar, of course, is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is what we're looking forward to. Revelation 11, verse 15, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The resurrection takes place, the marriage supper takes place, and then on the day of atonement, Satan and his demons are put away, and the seven last plagues are poured out in that nine-day period between trumpets and atonement, as Mr. O'Gwyn brings out in the Revelation booklet. Then on the 15th of the month, the Feast of Tabernacles begins, picturing the 1,000-year reign of Christ 
ruling over all nations on earth. It gives us a vision of tomorrow's world, and I hope that you all have read uh, Dr. Meredith's booklet on the world ahead, what will it be like. And by the way, uh, hello to all of our uh, brethren back here. I don't get to look at you over in the back corners, but uh, greetings to all of you. And uh, we were packed in here yesterday with 741 in attendance yesterday and had that wonderful uh, ceremony, the blessing of the little children, and another dozen or so, maybe a couple dozen, tuned in by uh, phone hookup as well. We need a vision of tomorrow's world. Let's take a look at Exodus, the 23rd chapter. I find it interesting that... Uh, those who give the uh, Holy Day offering messages always turn to Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, but Exodus 23rd is another option for you um, speakers. Um, Exodus 23, starting with verse 14. Three times, or three seasons, you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Exodus 23, verse 15. Hmm. Uh, that tea's pretty good, although uh, you might want to get me a little hotter tea uh, sometime um, in the next uh, hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> Exodus 23, verse 15, you shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And verse 16, the Feast of Harvest. The first, first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field and the Feast of Ingathering. So the Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord Eternal. And, of course, women may not be attending because they may be pregnant or be delivering babies at that time and not be coming. But the Feast of Ingathering is the great fall harvest when all the world will be called by God to be saved. Exodus, the 19th chapter, turn back a few pages. Exodus 19 to verse 5. Exodus 9, verse 19, verse 5. Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Though Israel failed in that calling as a kingdom of priests, and now who has taken their place? You and I are called to be that kingdom of priests. We saw yesterday that God has called us a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And God has called us to fulfill that. Israel failed to keep God's covenant, so Christ established a new covenant at the Passover. And we're pioneers of that new covenant. We have that sermon, number 809, Pioneers of the New Covenant. And we're called to be king, kings and priests, as Dr. Meredith emphasized on the opening night message, Revelation 5.10, that God has made us, as Dr. Meredith emphasized, has already made us 
kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We are called to be kings. What are the characteristics of kings? The sermon today is titled, The Character of Kings. We're going to take a look at some of those characteristics of our calling as kings. First, we need to take a look into the future. We need to visualize the kingdom. And the sermons throughout the feast, of course, give us that vision and the way the world will have to live when it learns Christ's way of living. You turn to Matthew, the 17th chapter, you get a vision that Christ gave Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. For they had lived with Christ day after day, night after night, and now he was transformed in vision before them. And who did they see? And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Then the voice came from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We, of course, want to live a life that is pleasing to God as well. But who were there? Notice back in verse 28 of chapter 16 what Jesus said to them. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So what they had was a vision of the kingdom of God. And what was the vision? They saw Moses and Elijah. You turn, I turn over the page in my Bible. Uh, verse 9, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. We know that here the Elijah was the one who turned the hearts of the people to God. He says, if uh, that was one of his major responsibilities when he challenged the prophets of Baal. So Elijah turned the hearts of the people to the true God. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong was doing that. We are still doing that to this day. That That is a, an Elijah-like work that Mr. Armstrong did. And we're continuing to do the Elijah-like work. But who is the Elijah to introduce Christ that is going to come? You might turn to Revelation, the 11th chapter. Revelation 11. You find here the two witnesses. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, what characteristics do these two men have? And if any 
one wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. You know the story of Elijah. When King Ahab sent uh, 50 soldiers uh, after him, and he'd call down fire from heaven and consume 50 soldiers. Then the king sent another group of 50 soldiers, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the second group of 50 soldiers. And the third soldier came and said, don't, don't, don't burn me up, Elijah, no, please. And so Elijah was kind enough to uh, accord with God's guidance to accompany that final cohort of uh, 50 soldiers uh, back to the king and had a confrontation with King Ahab, as you remember. But here we find that these two are like Moses and like Elijah. Elijah called down fire from heaven. And so, continuing here in verse 6, So these have power to shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. It's exactly what Elijah did. And you can read about um, Elijah being a man like we are, like passions at the end of uh, the book of James. But notice also, they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Uh, Very reminiscent of Moses. So here you find two major leaders in the hierarchical structure of the government of God, Moses and Elijah, that uh, Christ gave a vision of his coming in the kingdom. Who else is going to be in the kingdom? You turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. Here are the men and women of faith. Hebrews 11. And I'll just skip over the names of them in just a minute here. Hebrews 11. The first one mentioned, the men and women of faith, is Abel, verse 4. Verse 5, Enoch. Verse 7, Noah. Verse 8, Abraham. Sarah, verse 11. And then these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. One of the greatest statements could be made of any of us is the fact we died in the faith. I would hope that we'd be able to say that. We have, uh, I guess, one of our listings that we have, I call it uh, Living Church of God and Global Church of God Saints, Ministers and Wise. In fact, I may just read all of this that we have uh, just to remember that these are the saints that are going to be in God's kingdom. Of course, we're not the judge. God is. But the greatest statement that could be said of anyone who is deceased is that he or she died in the faith. I'm going to list these people who died in the faith. September 15, 1997, Sid Hegvold, age 79. November 15, 1998, Colin Adair, age 61. December 11th, 1999, Tony Mac Smith, age 57. June 15, 2000, Donald Contardi, age 63. September 7th, 2000, Raquel Ralda, 
age 66, an elder serving in Guatemala. November 13, 2000, Saleh Bay, age 75, an elder serving in Myanmar. June 26, 2001, Encardio Benitez, age 76, pastor serving in the Philippines. April 9, 2002, Donald Turk, age 77, out in California. July 3, 2002, Howard Stein, age 88, elder serving in Phoenix. November 7, 2003, Raul Reyes in California, age 54. February 12, 2004, Mr. Tex Benitez, age 68, an elder uh, serving in the Philippines. March 30, 2004, Gorgonio de Guia, age 66, elder living in the Philippines. April 14, 2004, Carl McNair, age 66. And the wives we mentioned as well, August 26, 2004, Elaine Burgett, age 51. September 25, 2004, Dr. Lynn Torrance, age 87. March 12, 2005, during the martyrdom in Milwaukee, Randy Gregory, six members were killed and four were wounded in that tragedy. Randy Gregory, age 51, the minister, March 12, 2005. Francis Arnaldo, age 70, the wife of Mr. Arnaldo, April 22, 2005. Walter Warrington, age 84, May 27, 2005. April or May 2005, Ramona de Guia, a widow of Gorgonio de Guia. In June 2005, Fadila Benitez, age, I'm not, we don't have her age, widow of Encardo Benitez. Is this fan on? I'm getting a little warm. Oh. Okay, full blast, thank you. Uh, Mr. Walter Warrington, age 84, uh, serving in Akron, June 2005. Mr. John O'Gwynn, age 56, June 14, 2005. July 24, 2005. C.B. Short, age 75, in Corpus Christi. David Burson, age 54, August 19, 2005. Then Loida Benitez, widow of Tex Benitez, uh, November 2005. Ken McLeod, age 75, June 18, 2006. Mary Hagvold, some of you know her in the Atlanta area, age 80, December 17, 2006. <clears throat> well, I better not read all of these, but I'll read a few more. <clears throat> Carl Ponder, age 67, August 12, 2007. Keith Walden, November 29, 2007, age 62. Rosalie Turk, age 84, 2008. Mr. D. Bar December 8, 2010, age 94. Sid Hull, age 81, March 2011. Tom Gossett, age 77, serving in Knoxville, March 7, 2012. Evo Walker, March 13, 2012. Age 81, <clears throat> serving in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, Judy Lowe, age 68, June 14, 2012. Larry Rawson, uh, 73, in 
Tampa. Leona Bonjour, June 26, 2013, age 66. Nancy Hall, June 19, 2013, age 61. Reiner Lucan, age 73, up in uh, Ohio, the Chicago area. Uh, September 12, 2013. Charles Knowlton, age 86, in Columbus, Ohio, October 21, 2013. Carl Klink, age 82, November 1, 2013. Cheryl Meredith, November 29, 2013, age 67. Lila Stein, age 95, December 23, 2013. Donald Wood, age 77, elder serving in El Dorado, Arkansas, March 28, 2014. Glenn Gilchrist, age 59, April 27, 2014. Vernon Dameron, age 83, an elder serving in Russellville, Arkansas. And Mary Warrington, widow of elder Walter Warrington, May 4, 2014. So when you think of all our brothers and sisters who are sleeping in Christ, we can be honoring them and realizing that they were faithful and died in the faith. We thank God for them. And we are seeking the kingdom of God above all else. And we want to, if we die in this life, we want to die in the faith. So if we are going to have the character of God we need to have vision. We look forward to the time when the resurrection will take place. And Moses and Elijah and the saints that I just mentioned, I didn't mention all of them, will be in the first resurrection. These all died in faith, Hebrews 11:13, Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. You know, how strongly... Are you embracing the promises of God? Or is it something that you are urgent about, you're passionate about, you are committed to embrace and keep those promises in mind and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth? And we thank God for those who will be in the kingdom of God. Who else beside Moses and Elijah? Abraham, of course, will be there. Look to Romans, the fourth chapter. Romans 4. Romans 4. You know, what is Abraham's inheritance? We know that the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, in Matthew 5, but Romans 4, verse 13, for the promise that he would be, what? The heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So <laughs> for the Protestants to say the law is done away, then if the law is done away, there's no transgression, there's no sin. So it's a contradiction of the reality of what God has. So again, those who are in the latter part of verse 16, and those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all.
So God gave Abraham that promise, and uh, those who are of Abraham are faithful. Those who are Christ's are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. That scripture just popped into mind. That must be um, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'll turn to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Let me show you something that impressed me about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you read through their lives, you wonder, <laughs> uh, I mean, they were human. They had human, great human mistakes, and yet they were ultimately faithful. And what did God say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, the Sadducees were questioning Jesus about the resurrection. And I won't go the whole story, uh, but he says in verse 30 of Matthew 22, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but like the angels of God in heaven. And then we had some people who've gone astray after the book of Enoch, thinking that angels married women, physical humans, and created Giants. Some of our brethren have just gone way off base, and it's just amazing because they've gone out on the twigs and not the trunk of the tree. Angels do not marry. And God said they will, when He created animals, they reproduce after their kind. Humans produce after their kind. God is producing after His kind. But angels do not reproduce. Well, that's... It's sad that we've had some that have uh, gone astray. But notice this, verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, and look at this, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Even though they are dead and asleep, they are just as well as being alive. For God says, what is not will be, and vice versa. But He never said, I'm the God of David. He said, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God, uh, He didn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> he named them individually. They are going to be right at the top, as Mr. Armstrong had in the hierarchical structure of the coming kingdom of God, the vision of God's kingdom. You have Christ, then the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you would have under them Elijah and Moses. With Elijah over the religious section of the world, Moses over the governmental uh, section of the world, and then who else would be in the kingdom? Well, we'll, we'll see here in a moment uh, more of those who are in God's kingdom. Let's turn to Matthew, the 19th chapter. It's back a couple pages. Matthew 19 and verse 27. Peter said to Jesus, We've left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, the twelve apostles will have an extraordinary opportunity 
to be ruling over the twelve tribes. But where are the twelve tribes? Obviously, when the millennium begins, and each of the apostles is over one of the tribes of Israel, those tribes must be identifiable. And so we find, as I mentioned yesterday in Revelation, the seventh chapter, that, you, well, I don't know if I mentioned that yesterday, but you have each of the twelve tribes of Israel mentioned, physical uh, tribes of Israel, that are sealed, not uh, sealed, the same way you were to be sealed in Ezekiel 9, verse 4, from the tribulation, from the day of the Lord. They've gone through the tribulation, but now they're protected during the day of the Lord. So here in God's government, you'll have the twelve apostles uh, ruling over each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then who else? Turn back to Ezekiel 37. So it's exciting to get that vision of God's coming family, the royal family, the royal government of God. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them. That is, over Israel and Judah. There'll be one king, he says in verse 22. They shall have one shepherd, verse 24. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And so, verse 25, My servant David shall be their prince forever. So King David was a man after God's own heart. And we thank God for him. And he'll have that great responsibility governing over Israel. And we can only speculate as to who's going to be governing over the Gentiles. But we know the prophet Daniel actually was ruling under the great king over Babylon. So he was a great leader. So we thank God for the experience when you read through Daniel's experience under two kings in both uh, both Babylon and Persia. He had the experience of ruling over Gentile nations, of course, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, probably be with him in that governmental structure. So in the governmental structure of tomorrow's world, you'd have under Daniel, and you'd probably, uh, I mean under Moses, you have Daniel over the Gentile people, and then King David over the Israelitish people. But there are other functions in the government of God, and we need to have that vision for tomorrow's world. Let's turn to, well, Ezekiel, the 40th chapter, just mentioned. There, 40 through 48, you have a description of the millennial temple. And uh, some believe that it should be built now, but at least, I believe, half of the Orthodox uh, believe that the Messiah will build the millennial temple. And, uh, of course, at the very end of that, you have a description. Mr. Uh, Wally Smith was talking about uh, your cities in tomorrow's world. Can you design your cities? Well, you actually already have a design of uh, the land around the temple area. I won't go through the description there, but chapter 48 uh, gives a description of the borders around the temple area. Notice the last verse in the book of Ezekiel. What is Jerusalem going to be called, another name for it. Verse 35, the last verse of Ezekiel 48. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, 
And the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh Shammah. When we were touring Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles and Global in 1998, the bus driver and the tour guide would say, Sham, Sham, meaning there, there. And so the eternal is there. Yahweh Shammah is going to be the name of Jerusalem. So Christ is going to be dwelling and ruling with the capital of the world there in Jerusalem, Yahweh Shammah. So it's exciting to see the millennial temple in the city that is going to be called the eternal is there. Luke, the 19th chapter. Again, we see some of the vision of tomorrow's world. And we as kings in training need to have that vision. Luke 19, and uh, this is the parable of the minas. We won't go through the whole parable, but in verse 17, the one that had multiplied his mina ten times, and he says to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. So sometimes we think, oh, this is what I have to do is overburdening. It's overwhelming. You know, the Bible tells me I've got to do all these things. And yet Jesus said, you're faithful in very little. If you're faithful in little, you're going to be faithful in much. And if, uh, you know, my mother told me, uh, one of my jobs was to take out the garbage. And uh, she says, Richard, take out the garbage. And I said, oh, ma. She says, now, Richard, smile. Say, yes, mom. Okay, yes, mom. Take the garbage out. You're going to faithful in very little. He gave them rulership over ten cities. So some of you may be ruling over ten cities, some over five cities. And so, well, I, I don't have any governmental uh, experience and uh, training. Well, yes, you do. Everything you do, you're in training. You're a faithful servant of God, fulfilling whatever responsibilities you have. And we mentioned those responsibilities in the family context yesterday. What are your responsibilities? You're a father, a mother, a son, a daughter. Or maybe you are a president of a spokesman club. Uh, maybe you're a deacon or a deaconess. Or maybe you're a school teacher. Whatever responsibilities you have, pray about those responsibilities that you can be faithful over very little. But some of God's people are going to be ruling over cities. Let's take a look at uh, Revelation, the third chapter, and we know that even in this day and age, there are saints that are of any one of these seven different attitudes. And those who, even though, of course, the context is the ears, seven ears of God's church, as Mr. Armstrong pointed out, those seven attitudes, those same spirit of mind, exist every year from the time of Christ till now. There are, there's the Sardis attitude. There is the Ephesus attitude. And as you heard in some of my sermons on overcoming, we have to examine ourselves with respect to each of the seven churches. Have I left my first love? If I have, I need to repent of that and change. 
Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, Jesus says seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 3, we see what the calling and the governmental opportunity is going to be for Philadelphians in tomorrow's world. Verse 10, he tells us he's going to keep us from the Petrosmos, the hour of trial, the great tribulation, if we're faithful. We hold fast. But verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Philadelphians will be pillars in the temple of God. Where is the temple of God? That'll be the headquarters. And we'll be with Christ, so we have a very close relationship with Christ, and we have to make sure that we're fulfilling our responsibilities. So we have vision of tomorrow's world. We think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and Elijah, David, and the apostles. I think about Daniel and the prophets and all of the uh, uh, saints that have died. It will be in the first resurrection. What an incredible royal family God is creating. I appreciate Mr. Baisley's sermonette on uh, that we are works in progress. So thank you for that, Mr. Baisley. So the first of five characteristics of kings is godly kings in training have vision. Number two, godly kings pray for their subjects. Let's turn to James, the fifth chapter, James 5. Verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we pray for one another. We're not only kings, but of course we will be priests, a royal priesthood. We read from First Peter, the second chapter. We are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. Priests do what? What is their function? Their function is to teach. Their function is to intercede for others. And we pray for one another. So we take it very seriously when we have an announcement at Sabbath services or a prayer request for someone to, to, uh, for prayers for the brethren. And I know that God has helped me so many times because of your prayers when I've had uh, serious back problems or whatever it is, and I appreciate those prayers. They mean a lot. They come up to God's throne like incense, as you read in, I believe it's uh, Revelation, the 8th chapter. So he says, pray one for another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And while we're there, I didn't intend to say this, but Elijah was a man of a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Notice that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So God has called us, yes, we are a work in progress, but God has given us a promise that we pray for one another, we help one another as kingly men and women in, in training. We pray for one another. We care for our people. Isaiah, the 30th chapter, this probably has been read already, 
I was kidding them up there at uh, Lake of the Ozarks. Someone said that, oh, Mr. So-and-so has used my Scripture. And I said, well, no, it's, it wasn't his Scripture. It's God's Scripture. And it's okay to read the same Scripture ten times over during the feast. It's okay. Uh, so, uh, so if uh, we have uh, others... I'm not taking your Scripture. It's God's Scripture. And if you're going to read Isaiah 30, read it again and again and again and again during the rest of the feast. That's okay for speakers yet to come. I think it was Mr. Uh, Crystal Shannon kind of kidded me. and He said, Mr. Ames gave us um, permission to read from the Bible. So, okay, wait. <clears throat> Isaiah 29. And I'm sorry. I, the... Uh, Isaiah, the uh, 30th chapter, verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem and shall weep no more. He will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, uh, Mr. Baisley is talking about the afflictions that we experience, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore but your eyes shall see your teachers. The kingdom of God, the family of God, is composed of immortalized, glorified spirit beings, God beings. God is reproducing Himself, the sons of the resurrection. And we will be able to manifest ourselves in the physical form, just as Jesus did after His resurrection. And what did He do at the Sea of Galilee when they had met his disciples, he ate fish. It says that. So even as a resurrected spirit being, uh, you'll probably want to eat fish. I don't know. But, I, <laughs> but he did. And you will see, you will be a teacher that physical human beings will see even though you are an immortalized, glorified son of God. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it when you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. We need to know God's way if we're going to teach God's way. Mr. Gene Hilgenberg had an article in the Living Church News, November, December 2011, titled, Twelve Traits of Great Teachers. We're all going to be great teachers and we're in training. I won't read all of them, but I'll just start off. Number one, love to teach. Number two, great teachers are good communicators. And I know that's very important. When my, uh, I tell my wife when I'm going out, hun, I'm going outside to get the newspaper. So if uh, she sees I disappeared, she knows where I am. And uh, I try to let her to... Encourage her to let me know where she's going, so I know. Because when I, I don't know where she is, I get really, I get really concerned. So I tell her to take a, t a cell phone with me. Let me know if you're not back by six o'clock. Tell me where you are. I want to know where you are. Uh, one of the responsibilities of a husband: care and support and concern for your wife. But anyway, uh, we all need to be good communicators. And sometimes said, you know. Mary and Jane were uh, over there at the uh, party, and she said, she, that Mary or Jane, we need to be good communicators. And, and even 
in our church bulletins, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. And you've heard some of these bloopers from church bulletins. I'll share a few of them with you. (laughs) Barbara remains in the hospital and needs blood donors for more transfusions. She is also having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Jack's sermons. During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege. During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon when J.F. Stubbs supplied our pulpit. These are in church bulletins. Next Thursday, there will be tryouts for the choir. They need all the help they can get. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. Miss Charlene Mason sang, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. The rector will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth into Joy. Um, Just a couple more here. Irving Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a friendship that began in their school days. (laughs) Okay, one more. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) But one of the traits of good teachers are that great teachers are good communicators, uh, perhaps doing a little better than those church bulletins indicate. They are prepared, they're professional, they're committed, they have understanding, they have compassion and caring, they have confidence. Great teachers are confident because they know how to teach and in what they are teaching. They are fair and just. They use positive reinforcement. They are admirable, meaning they have high moral standards. And we need to have that integrity. There's going to be a total new educational system. And in the booklet here, Dr. Meredith talks about the educational system. And as teachers, we will be a part of that. Under true education begins at home. This is page 26 of The World Ahead. What will it be like? Nearly all authorities acknowledge that education should ultimately begin in the home. Yet too few parents, yet far too few parents, today realize this responsibility or take the time to perform it. As the God of the Bible told his people in ancient Israel, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 6 through 8, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Well, I hope that you as parents and even as leaders in the church are always taking that advantage to teach. Even in Titus it says the older women teach the younger women to obey their husbands so that the word of God be not blasphemed. And then we have the women to women uh, section in the Living Church News now. 
So I hope that you're learning and that you're teaching as well, even by your example, if you don't even do it by words, that by your example you are teaching. On page 31, Dr. Meredith writes this, under teachers of joy, undergirding everything we have described in this booklet, is the inspired realization that the family of God will be the ultimate teachers in the millennium. That family will include not only God and Jesus Christ, but also God's Spirit-born sons and daughters who are now being trained as teachers for the millennium. For the Bible makes it clear that the priests in ancient Israel were, outside of the home, the primary teachers in that society. And your Bible clearly reveals the true Christians, that true Christians today, are to be called priests or teachers for the millennium. So godly kings care for their subjects. And not only do priests teach, but they intercede. That is, they pray for others. You know, Second Timothy 2, um, where was it? First uh, Timothy, where the apostle... 1 Timothy 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. It just reminds me, we're looking for uh, a gas station to uh, refill our rental car at the St. Louis airport. We had to return the car with the full gas, and I couldn't find a gas station. And I turned side, and here was a big, uh, big dump truck, And a man rolled down his window. I said, where is a gas station? He says, follow me. Followed him about about an aisle, a mile, and brought me to a BP gas station. Wow. Here's a stranger who was so kind to let me follow him. And I pray that God will give him an extra blessing for his kindness in leading us to a gas station like that. We have to be that kind of people. But prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks... For all men, kings, all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So we pray for others. We pray for the president. We may not agree with his policies or his personality or character, but we pray for the office. The same way children need to pray for the office of their parents if they don't, they find in their parents, uh, uh, problem uh, character. So we pray for those who are in authority. And you know, take a look at Daniel, the ninth chapter. I mean, this is an incredible example that Daniel interceded for this carnal nation of Israel. Daniel 9. And um, Moses is rehearsing the uh, story of their coming out of out of Egypt in the 40 years of wandering. And he talks about the time when uh, he had gone up to get the two tablets of stone, but they had made a golden calf. Verse 12 in Deuteronomy 9. Then the Lord said to me, the Eternal said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have made themselves a molded image. Verse 14, God says to Moses, Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. If you were Moses, what would you have said? 
Yes, Lord, Your will be done. Blot out these carnal people and make of me a great nation. Your will be done. Is that what Moses did? Amazing. Just look over the page. And he said he prayed for Aaron, verse 20. Otherwise, God would have destroyed him. And he said, I kept prostrating myself, verse 25, for 40 days and 40 nights. Because the Lord, the Eternal, said He would destroy you. Verse 26, Therefore I prayed to the Eternal and said, O Lord Eternal, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. So Moses turned it around. God said, you brought these people out of Egypt. And Moses said, no, you brought them out of Egypt. Don't destroy these people. It's amazing how Moses would have interceded for people that were rebellious, who were carnal, who were obnoxious, and yet he interceded for them. Forty days and forty nights prostrating himself before God on Mount Sinai. Would you have done that? And yet, as I emphasized yesterday, we do need to pray for our enemies. Godly kings care for their subjects. Characteristic number two. Number three, godly kings exercise godly judgment. I know you've read this probably a hundred times, but 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. Dare any of you have a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? We are saints of God. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So God has called us to exercise godly judgment and in training to exercise that judgment. Now we have sermon number 762, Judges in Training. And also, Dr. Meredith must play sermon uh, mailed out August 11th, so you may not have seen that one yet. Uh, number 832, Righteous Judgment. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare to exercise godly judgment? 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. And we may emphasize this just before Passover each year. But we have that problem, as we heard in the uh, in the message uh, by Mr. Hunter about uh, judging other people. Verse 31, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So that's where we start in learning to be good judges for tomorrow's world. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So we judge ourselves and we learn the standards for judgment. We already sang that, I believe, in the hymn, Oh, how love I thy law. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You know, uh, years ago when I was working on my master's degree, you you get into the higher education and you get all these intellectual arguments that start your head spinning. And you think, can I counter that intellectual argument? Yes, I can. How and why? Because I know the Ten Commandments. And I know the absolutes of truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You know, John 8.32. 
And so he says the same here in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. So you can have wisdom far and above your enemies. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. And our teenagers have more understanding than their science teachers or their biology teachers if those teachers are not in God's church, if they don't know the Ten Commandments, or if they don't know the truth of God. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, the old Socrates and Plato and all those. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. So we need that standard for judgment. Turn to uh, Proverbs. Well, I won't turn there. Well, yes, turn to Proverbs, the 22nd chapter. It's only a little way away. Uh, Proverbs 22. So godly kings have a standard for judgment. And they know God's commandments. They, I had uh, one little boy yesterday um, volunteered to recite the Ten Commandments to me long form. So that was very inspiring. That uh, I don't know how old he is, but uh, I hope that all you children are learning the uh, Ten Commandments, and even uh, you know the short form, but at least the long form. In this case, he did a very good job of reciting that. And I recite it uh, sometimes when I can't go to sleep. I'll start off with Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no gods before me, no other gods before me. So I'll go through the whole Ten Commandments, long form. And uh, God is writing His laws on our hearts and on our minds. Is the new covenant, if you're asking Him to do that, and you're striving to live by that. We know that it tells us in Proverbs 1.7, stay here in Proverbs 22, I'm just going to quote Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, perhaps uh, Mr. O'Gwyn read this. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so we need wisdom and judgment and understanding. Chapter 2 of Proverbs, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold, integrity, good character, predictability of keeping your promises to others. That's the character that God expects all of His saints and training to have. Godly kings exercise godly judgment. I won't take the time. Just read through chapter 22 of Proverbs, chapter 23. Uh, this is wisdom. I'll just read to you a poem from uh, Edgar Guest uh, titled Wisdom. This is wisdom, maids and men, knowing what to say and when. Speech is common, thought is rare. Wise men choose their words with care. Artists with the master touch never use one phrase too much. Jesus preaching on the mount made his every sentence count. Lincoln's Gettysburg address 
needs not one word more or less. This is wisdom, maids and men, knowing what to say and when. We sang uh, Psalm 15 as one of the hymns this morning. And, uh, of course, that who's going to stand on God's whole, holy hill? Uh, those who keep their word, basically. So number three, godly kings exercise godly judgment. And we have to continually grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so that's number four. Godly kings grow in godly character. I won't turn there, but you know Second Peter 3.18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. God's plan of salvation teaches us to grow and overcome. The days of unleavened bread teach us the need to overcome by replacing the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We have the sermon that was sent out here uh, September 10th, uh, The Way of Overcoming, uh, number 812. Turn to Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. Deuteronomy 30. Here we find the essence of character. Godly kings in training grow in godly character. But that requires choice. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. We make those choices maybe hundreds, thousands of times a day. And we have to ask God to give us that guidance, the seventh law of success. Seek God's guidance continually, or seek God's continual guidance. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And he will direct your paths. As I've told you before, every time I, we go out to shop, my, going out the door, my wife says, oh, well, let's pray. You know, She wants to pray, and we ask God that he'll bless our shopping, and God blesses our shopping. So we acknowledge God in all our ways. Mystery of the Ages, page 69. The supreme creative accomplishment. Mr. Herbert Armstrong writes, God assigns angels responsibilities. But God created within them minds with power to think, to reason, to make choices and decisions. For there is one super important quality that even God's creative powers could not create instantly by fiat, the same perfect, holy, righteous character inherent in both God and the Word. This kind of character must be developed by choice and the intent of the one in whom it comes to exist. So are we making the right choices? We want God's character, and God's character is displayed through His Holy Spirit. So we ask that God's Spirit is flows out from us in rivers of living water. Remember Jesus' promise there in the last great day in John the seventh chapter. So you pray that God's Spirit and the fruits of God's Spirit will be evident in your lives, that when people see you, 
they can see the character of Christ. Turn to Philippians, the uh, second chapter, Philippians 2. Here the Apostle Paul is actually commending Timothy. Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2 and verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your estate. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your estate. For all seek their own, not their things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know His proven character, that as a son with a father, He served me in the gospel. So, brethren, we need to have that same example. We need to have the proven character that's demonstrated in our lives day after day, month after month, year after year. Whom do you know of proven character? Well, I mentioned some of the saints who are deceased and are sleeping in Jesus. They died in the faith. They had proven character. But I think of Dr. Roderick C. Meredith, who was ordained 61 years ago, and coming up now to 62 years. He has proven character. Do you have proven character? But we thank God for those who have died in the faith. And as Mr. Baisley said in his sermonette, that God is the master potter. We are work in progress. God knows what He's doing. Are we going to be ordinary or extraordinary? He asked. But God has promised right back over the page there in Philippians 1 that He has started a good work in us and He will complete it. Philippians 1 verse 6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The fourth characteristic, godly kings grow in godly character. The final one, number five, godly kings know their mission. We saw in Revelation, the third chapter, that God has set before the Philadelphians an open door. And thank you for the 50% of you, 50.5% of you that saw the telecast this morning, or at least part of it. We have a behind-the-work video that you'll be seeing on Tuesday uh, called The Philadelphian Mission. I mentioned that yesterday. Uh, We also have the sermon, number 794, uh, The Philadelphian Mission. And we also will have a handout for you. It's uh, going to be a poster. Mr. Um, Poole has said we have 700 of these, so we want one per family. These will be handed out Tuesday afternoon right after the after the video. So this gives the sevenfold mission of the church. And are you dedicated to fulfilling that mission? Kingly godly kings know their mission. Recently, well, recently, probably about in the past year, we have more church of God splits and uh, one church of God group was saying, well, we don't know what we're going to do yet because we're waiting for God to show us what we should do. Did that person ever read the Bible? Did they know what Christ said? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to make disciples of all nations? Do you know or not know your mission and what you should do as a church, as an organization? How sad 
A splinter group like that doesn't know their purpose. Well, brethren, we know our purpose. And we're going to be passionate in fulfilling that purpose, you know, even till the day we die. And that's Dr. Meredith's passion. That's his commitment. And you can see just every time he, he uh, speaks. Dr. Meredith wrote in the uh, LCN, The Purpose of the Church, Why are we here? What is God's work and our commission all about? I hope that the above explanation, that is about the sevenfold mission, will help and inspire all of us to understand why we exist and what we ought to be doing as the living church of God. Let us then move ahead on all fronts and honor God and our Savior Jesus Christ as we zealously fulfill these vital elements of the Great Commission. So he says this, and one of the tests for all of us, brethren, is are we following the leaders? My sheep hear my voice, and Jesus said in John 10, I think it's verse 37, my sheep hear my voice. Well, here's what Christ is saying through our presiding evangelist from the Living Church of God, Purpose of the Church, May, June 2009. Please study, meditate, and pray about these points, that is the sevenfold commission. Let me read that again. Please study, meditate, and pray about these points and ask God to help you build them into your daily lives so that this work of God may go forward with zeal and power as never before. Number five is godly kings know their mission. Well, let's conclude in Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians 2, Philippians 3, sorry, and verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Matthew 6.33. That is the goal. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That should be your passion. That should be your mission. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So, brethren, let's press on towards the upper call that God has called us to. And let's display the character of kings. Let's have that care and compassion for others. Let's have intercessory prayer that we can be the priests that will intercede even as Moses interceded for a carnal nation. And at the same time, let's love one another and visualize the kingdom. Let's thank God for the calling He's given us as kings, priests, and judges. And let's persevere to the very end.